Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, my name is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. Welcome to the third episode in our five-part podcast series on the Showtime program, The Trade, a docu-series providing a front-row seat to the opioid epidemic through the eyes of those most affected, the growers and cartel bosses, addicts and their families, and law enforcement. Each podcast features an introduction by veteran documentary producer Pagan Harleman, who serves as executive producer of The Trade and offers backstories of each episode. She's then followed by interviews with subject matter experts on issues relating to each trade episode. Following the introduction to today's episode from Pagan, we'll hear from family coach Robin Starr, who provides insight and analysis of the family dynamics that play out in episode three with John, an addict in Atlanta, who we meet in this episode, and his family. Later, we're introduced to the nation's first opioid court by, run by Judge Craig Hanna from Buffalo, New York. We conclude this episode with a discussion with U.S. Senator Rob Portman about stopping the flow of illicit drugs into our country. We begin with Pagan Harleman, executive producer of The Trade. Pagan, can you introduce us to the third episode and its associated backstories? Absolutely. So episode three of The Trade, we took a pivot, and we had focused on the first two episodes uh, in terms of law enforcement on Detective Mark Edwards in Columbus. And in episode one, uh, you saw him do a traffic stop and then move up to the arrest of a dealer. In episode two, you saw him pursue an overdose investigation. Um, In episode three, we pivot to Special Agent James and to his work with Homeland Security Investigations. Um, And, you know, we follow him basically finding out about a courier and then uncovering a cell in central Columbus that was supplying a lot of heroin. Um, And so we followed that investigation in the third episode and the fourth episode. And in episode three, we also meet a new addict and his family, and that's John. And uh, John is homeless nominally in Atlanta, and he's living with a group of young users who all provide emotional support to each other. Um, So you see him with his team, and you also see him uh, basically, you know, like many sort of homeless users, he has a structure to his day where he goes and um, uh, panhandles. You know, he tries to get enough money, and his day is sort of broken out in terms of, like, trying to get money, then going to buy, and then shooting up, trying to get money, going to buy, and shoot up. So we sort of follow how John manages to support his habit, you know, with his friends. And then we also see him go to court, which is very common. A lot of these addicts spend a lot of time in court and jail or on the street. What I would say is, um, you know, as someone who has uh, addiction in my own family, um, my extended family, um, anybody who's using is going to end up manipulating or lying at some point in order to support their habit, you know. And um, John was honest enough to share with us how 
how he did it and how it affected him, you know, which I thought was a very brave thing to do. Um, you know, I thought that gave us a real insight into kind of, um, you know, the fact that he hasn't lost his humanity, you know, that he really, that he still had the capacity to feel guilt and to sort of step outside of himself and look at what he was doing and how he felt about it. I would also just say as an aside that, um, when our team was filming with him, our cinematographer, Matt Porwell was going to get married and John was living in a trailer at the time, you know, sort of, uh, unofficially uh, staying in this trailer and John's trailer had been sacked by somebody and a lot of his possessions had been hurt and our producing team had to leave for the day and they were still filming and John had the wherewithal to turn and say to my cinematographer Matt Porwell, hey have a good time at your wedding and to me that meant so much that in the middle of one of the worst days you know that he had had in some time he could still think about somebody else and wish them well you know so I our, our team has a lot of affection for John, and, you know, we really hope, you know, that he can uh, find a way to sobriety and, and to a better life. Yeah. Yeah, he really came through. His his personality and his heart, a big heart, came through he has a big in heart. the show. He does. Um, so he, was, he had charges pending against him, and he was waiting for his day in court. Mm-hmm. And while he's waiting, he, he used. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that happens so often that addicts use while they're waiting for their day in court. Oftentimes that that day in court is their first opportunity to get into drug court. Mm-hmm. People are dying waiting to go for their day in court. People are dying waiting to go to court. People are dying waiting to get treatment. People yeah. are dying. You know, I mean, people are dying and, and the country does not seem to understand it. And I would just say anecdotally, like this is up to the experts to talk about, but like there seems to be very little understanding of what is effective in terms of getting people off of heroin. You know, I mean, the one thing that, you know, when we talk to some experts is medically assisted treatment, but there's still some treatment programs that don't even accept that. So there, there seems to not be a general understanding of what works, but you know, what we say is this, this, this should not be simply a policing issue. This is a mental health issue. And this is a crisis. This mm-hmm. is a largest health crisis that uh, this generation has faced. Um, but, you know, just what we saw, and like I said, this is up to the experts, really, or somebody who's been studying it, but is that there's a lack of consensus about what works. And this, these opioids and this heroin is so strong that, you know, to see, for our team to see up close just how difficult it is for people to break out of this cycle was very, very, very hard on us. The, there is an amount of science here. I mean, your brain has changed after using heroin. You know, much as it's changed after drinking, you know, yep. so it's like... To ask somebody to go cold turkey is just not realistic. You know, I mean, that's what, what we saw, at least. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's where, you know, like I said, this is up to the experts, but I would hope that at some point, you know, there's there's a, there's an understanding because a lot of money is being put into things that aren't working. I mean, we've, we've, we've have a, as a country, we've spent 20 years throwing billions of dollars into war on drugs, and we haven't gotten anywhere. Next, we hear from Robin Starr, who provides insight and analysis of the family dynamics that play out with John and his family in Episode 3. I see that a lot with parents. We're, we have this hopeful, in-denial moment, and a lot of them, when we hear the right things, we want to we wanna think that's really what's happening. And unless you are staying connected and you're not detached and you're being involved, how else do you know? You're just going to almost want to hear that he's doing okay, and so you're kind of off the hook. It doesn't mean you're not loving this person. It's almost like you're you're loving them to death. You just love them so much you want the right thing for them, and 
they're saying the right thing, so it must be right. Loving them to death. I mean, uh, describe that. Describe what you mean when you say loving them to death. So loving and caring does not mean enabling, right? But we want to love them in a way that's going to influence them wanting to change, wanting them to not use anymore. So if we continue to try to fix things like we did when they're younger or we act upon our intuition then and try to make their lives better, we're actually disabling them to make their lives better. They don't have any reason to change, right? If we keep softening the fall, if we keep making the natural consequences not so impactful, why is there, why should they change? So, obviously, I, th I think we both agree that um, if nothing changes in this situation, it's only a matter of time before John passes. Before Absolutely. And the, the, both Laura and the dad love him. And when you, when you ask me, what does loving him to death mean? Well, by doing everything for him, they're not allowing him to have a life. And he is just continuing to use. And we all know, unfortunately, the next step when we're using continually is usually an overdose. And if... And if it goes one step further, it's death. So there's um, probably who knows how many parents that are going through this same situation across our country right now. What advice could you give to them on how you get out of that rut, how you get out of that enabling? We have to think outside of ourselves. And that means what would motivate and influence this person to change? If he, um, if I take good care of myself, not only am I modeling that behavior, but I'm also going to have boundaries and limits because I'm caring for myself, so therefore I'm going to create boundaries in what I will and will not accept from my loved one. In the next segment, Robin talks about boundaries. It is a challenge, but actually if you create what you need to in regard to limits, for example, I'm, I'm curious, I'd love to talk to Laura and find out, Laura, what was it that allowed you to make boundaries of you can't use in my house, but I'm going to drive you to get your heroin. So I thought that was interesting. There was real in, um, inconsistency there. For Laura, I would have I would have suggested, okay, the boundaries are you can't be in my house if you're high, right? So he has to go someplace else, and he, you can say, um, John, you're welcome to stay at my house. But if there's drugs in your and anywhere on you, or if I feel like you're high, you're going to have to leave. So you have a choice. You have a choice, John. You can either come to my house and not have drugs with you and not be using, and you can stay here, or you're going to make a choice of if you do drugs, bring some paraphernalia with you, then you're making a choice not to stay with me. So we're putting the onus on him. And again, he needs some ownership of his life. There's nothing about his life that he is responsible for except for getting drugs. So let's at least throw some critical thinking in there. Teach him how to critical think. If I do this, this is going to happen. Next, we moved on and we talked about John's relationship with his father. And that's what we, we're, again, fixing. Mm -hmm. We're going to fix right. them. And when at the same time, we're telling them, hey, you're not really capable. Mom and dad are going to take care of this. Yeah. Their sister is going to take care of this. There's no dignity in... Um, failing or succeeding when someone else does it for you. And so many of these kids are missing that dignity part, that ownership, that responsibility, the feel-good stuff that comes. So how do we replace heroin that makes us feel so good? We have to replace it with something else that's going to make us feel good. And 
we take baby steps, and some of the baby steps are accomplishing things for yourself that you haven't accomplished before. And that is, oh, I don't have any money to pay my car payment. Okay, well, what am I going to do about that? And maybe that's a discussion a parent has is, oh, you don't have enough money to pay your car? Tell me, what are some of your options? Let's brainstorm. So we can offer the brainstorm and support and stay connected. And as long as we're still connected and we're not detached, we have the ability to positively influence them, whether it be their thinking or their willingness to change. Next, Robin talks about the importance of collaboration. But there needs to be unity and create a consi- consistent boundaries and hold to them and act things that you actually can follow through in because you need to keep your credibility. Okay, and you don't want to lose that control and have, you know, say one thing and then not follow it up. So you want to make sure that all the people are on the same page, but they can really enact. And think of these people that are now going to connect, the support they're going to feel from each other instead of the isolation and the guilt and the shame. So in the support group that I have on a monthly basis, we sit around and we collaborate. And I've got moms and dads there. And they get on the same page. They start where they're not. And they see that it does not serve their child any anything good. But the, the objective is to develop these boundaries or develop rules that you're going to follow as um, as a family and be very clear about what your um, expectations are for yourselves and for the person with substance use disorder. Communicate that to him. I believe in transparency. So if, if we can model that, you know, we're open, we are, we are offering information, and we don't try to manipulate them, it's, it's a good feeling for us, and they see how that actually can be. Right? They may never have seen that before. Um, and then you offer the clarity, and then there's the consistency. Really important to do that follow-up. Make sure that you enact those rules that you can actually follow. Really important. And then when I bring in families, let's say um, they're individual families, and they're divorced, and they have not a, not a very nice divorce, that's where it gets a little bit trickier. But I... I you bring them both in, the, the two that are at one another's throats? You bring them in, in that? So it de- really depends on, on their relationship. But it's very key for me to work with both people and make sure that they're aligned and that they do communicate. So someone like John can't go to dad and ask for $700 for his uh, court fees and then can't go to mom and say, you know, dad won't give me this and now she wants to be the good guy. So we want to get them aligned. Really That's important. I recently had um, a client who had that very, very same experience where they were on different pages, and I'm going to say that the mom uh, was taking care of her son, and when I say taking care of, doing everything for him, you know, disabling him by him not having to do anything. She just wanted to make sure he was clean, clean, clean from his heroin, and Dad was doing everything he could in terms of knowing the science behind motivating someone to change. And he was really using some great tools and skills and making some headway. But you can't make headway if, if, if you're on a oh, different page. Different page. Yeah. I was trying to use a different word. Mm-hmm. And um, unfortunately, um, he woke up and mom found him dead. Robin, can you give us the takeaways? There's a few takeaways. Well, there's many, but we'll just go with a few. And one is, we didn't cause this. We really didn't. The shame and the guilt 
needs to be set aside in order to work a proper program that's going to give you the skills and tools to stay connected to your loved one, to love them, love the positive behaviors, endorse those, reinforce those, and step away from the negative. Don't belittle and don't become hostile or confrontational because you're going to lose that connection. And that connection is what's going to help the situation grow into what we all want to see, and that is a productive, recovered person who has that light back in their eyes. In episode three, John has charges pending and is waiting for his day in court. Like many other users across the country, he uses while he waits. Last year, over 100 people died waiting to get into drug court in Buffalo, New York. Next, we'll hear from Judge Craig Hanna, who created the Opioid Court, a special docket designed to get people into treatment within 24 hours of arrest while they wait to get into drug court. Judge, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. And that was a very powerful episode when I just watched for um, the trade. And just to um, elaborate on that, um, it really shows why we need um, to actually move on these type of cases immediately. And that was the genesis of our program to make sure individuals can receive treatment prior to their full day in court. We want to make sure we link them to services immediately so they can get all the help that they need. So take us through the program, Judge. How do they qualify to get into your program? Any person that gets arrested in our jurisdiction, and it could be for almost any offense, it doesn't have to be a drug-related offense, they get diverted to our part if they um, answer some of the screening questions. Um, as you know, in the, in the screening, when you go into any detention facility, they ask you basically medical questions so they can properly house you. But we added a few extra questions about have you ever been Narcan, have you ever used opiates? Have you ever um, abused opiates or any opioids? And then it gets redirected to our part for special screening. And then we let them know that everything they say for us is just for the medical benefit, and we're just trying to give them the treatment that they need. And we get them in treatment within hours as opposed to days or weeks. And during that time, we put their criminal case on hold while we focus on their medical needs and to make sure that we get them back on track. The main thing is because, as you stated before, Greg, is that some people were dying, and that's what we found in our jurisdiction, dying before they had their day in court, because if you don't give them the help that they need, they're going to continue to use before you get them linked to services. So we felt that was important to get them linked immediately. The criminal case is going to be there, you know. We want to make sure the person is going to be here so they can live and be here and support their families. So the criminal case is held in abeyance for, what is it, 90 days, I believe it is, right, Judge? Yes, um, and it could be longer. Uh, the main part is that we want to make sure we get them a track record of successful treatment. Like with anything in life, this habit. And we want them to get in the habit of going to get their medically assisted treatment, going to behavioral therapy, going to group and individual counseling, and the habit of linking with their family. Um we put their case on hold, and that's very important. I had to thank the county prosecutor for that because we realized that we're going to get back to the criminal charge, but the whole thing is we're going to treat the whole person before we get to the criminal charges. So within their first 24 hours, they go before the judge, and they get into treatment, and they're given their choice for medication-assisted treatment of uh, buprenorphine or methadone or Vivitrol. 
right? Yes. Um, and it's always their choice with the advice of counsel and with the treatment providers. Um, as you know, medically assisted treatment now is the standard for um, recovery in these, uh, this, this opiate. And we try to give them a link to it immediately. If they don't want medically assisted treatment, even though we believe that is the gold standard, we do have traditional inpatient and outpatient counseling for them as well. Um, but we always want to make sure that we get them into treatment immediately. They get released once they're linked to treatment, and we have to come back to in front of us every day to make sure they're doing what they're supposed to do, going to their services, linking with their families, getting their medication, and just getting back on track. So they're before you every single day. Every day. Every day we want to make contact with them. Because as you saw with John in the episode, you lose that daily contact with individuals that are encouraging you. You may be around individuals that are pulling you down the path you don't want to go. John was fortunate. He had a sister that was there for him. But a lot of our participants have burned every bridge, um, exhausted every resource, and you're the person that gives them hope and instills hope in them to make sure they come back. Most of our participants, once they finish our program, they keep stopping in, and I like that because we became a constant in their life constant encouragement, constantly trying to motivate them. And I try to always make sure we're there for them, even when we're finished our intervention program. So most finish the program within how long, Judge? Everyone speaks um, through our program within 90 to 180 days. And then they get transferred to our traditional drug court, if it's a case that should go there, or if it's a felony case, it may actually get transferred to the grand jury. But in the interim, we just want to make sure everyone gets the treatment that they need, they get the linkages that they need, and also we get them linked with ancillary services. This may sound kind of trivial, but we make sure they have transportation needs, their bus passes. We make sure they get linked with insurance if they're on Medicaid or Medicare. And also we make sure that they have family and, physical and family court visitation. We try to link them with that, too, because you can't do this by yourself. You need a whole village and your family, your community, and your friends to help you through this process of recovery. So your program has been in place for a little bit better than nine months now. Tell us about the successes you've had. Yes, our program's been um, around since May 1st. And our qualitative goal, and I know a lot of people say it's a little odd, is just keeping our individuals alive. And that's what we're trying to do, make sure that they're alive until their next court date. Um, unfortunately, we had two people succumb. But the year before, we had 100 people succumb. Um, and any loss is, is a bad loss and it's a tragedy. The two people that succumbed from um, overdose that we had in the last year, um, one finished our services, and I love the gentleman, but at the conclusion of his case, um, he decided he no longer wanted to go to treatment. And as you know, we can't mandate people to treatment. But while he was with us, he was doing great. He was a great spirit. And then once his case was over, um, he decided on his own to forego treatment, and then maybe about four months later, I got a note that um, he overdosed. Mm -hmm. The other young lady that, uh, unfortunately, is no longer with us, uh, she refused treatment and absconded from us. And, and even though we have an aggressive warrant check and wellness program with our sheriff and police department, she evaded us, and then we found out that she overdosed as well. Well, that's, uh, that's certainly very, very tragic. But then when you compare that, though, with the loss of life in just the prior year, 100 people lost versus two, that's tremendous progress. Yes, I appreciate that. I, I know that we're trying to help everyone we can. 
And I just have to stay encouraged, you know, help the ones that can and want to help. And the ones that refuse to help, you try to keep talking to them and keep encouraging them. And hopefully one day it sinks in. And I guess that's our real goal is a lot of people do want help, as you saw with John and some others. But it's the pull of the, of the addiction of this drug is so strong that although they want help, um, it's just hard for them to break that vicious cycle. And I know I've talked about this before. They, they said this drug is so strong that on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the most euphoric feeling that you ever had, this drug is not even on that scale. It's not a 10, it's a 5,000. So they're always chasing that. And it's hard, and I know I don't want to sound like I'm being um, too easy, but um, it's hard for them because it becomes a physical need as more than an emotional need. So our job is to keep encouraging them, keep trying to get them linked with treatment. And even the ones that are um, resistant to treatment, I still try to work with them. Because you don't know. It could be their 8th, ninth, 10th, 11th time that they refuse treatment. And on the 12th time, maybe the time that they're ready. That's why we always stay encouraged and that will always be available for them. Judge Hannah, what advice would you have for other communities that may want to tackle uh, bringing into their community a court such as yours? I saw this quote um, on, on the show, and it says, when you think you're too small to make a difference, try spending a night in a room full of mosquitoes. Even though it seems like we're plugging our finger into a dam with a hole or a dike with a hole in it, but if we can save one or two lives, or as you saw, that we can save 98 lives out of a year. It's worth every penny. It's worth every effort. I know it seems like it's hard and exhausting, especially when you have individuals that seem like they don't want help. But it's our job, and I think it's coming upon us to be the custodians of people, the least, the last, the last overlooked. It's our job to make sure we get them back on track, because there are our sons and daughters, there's our brothers and sisters, our nieces and nephews, and we have to make sure they're here to be with their families. And it sounds like it's a difficult task, but it's not. As you saw, Greg, it just makes the day longer. We spend as much time we meet with our participants. We always try to encourage them, even when they believe that they failed us. And I always say you never fail us. You, know, you might have disappointed us. We want to make sure we instill hope and encouragement with them. And I think our program can be mimicked, and it can travel anywhere. The only thing is the human factor. You just have to have the commitment and the understanding and the love in your heart to know that you're helping out your fellow man. In Episode 3 of The Trade, we witness what appears to be unrelenting waves of drug smugglers coming across the Mexican border into our country, fueling the opioid epidemic. Stopping the flow of drugs into our country has become a critically important nonpartisan issue that must be addressed if we're ever going to stem the tide of the opioid crisis. Joining us now to discuss the challenges we face in keeping illicit drugs, particularly fentanyl, from entering our country is U.S. Senator Rob Portman. Welcome, Senator Portman. Greg, good to be on with you again. Okay. In our first podcast on the trade, we interviewed Senator Sherrod Brown, who talked about the Interdict Act and its role in helping protect our borders. And I know, Senator Portman, you were a big supporter of that. Today, what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about the STOP Act. Um, so let's start at the very beginning. Senator Portman, could you please frame the problem that the STOP Act is going to address? Absolutely, Greg. And let me start by thanking you for all the work you have done uh, after going through a 
personal family tragedy and losing Sam. And um, unfortunately, uh, for many families in Ohio, you know, they have suffered the same uh, kind of tragedy. And, and yet you've taken that grief and channeled it into something very constructive. And, and I've appreciated uh, working with you over the years and being on your podcast. And I thank you for all you do to try to raise awareness and to raise hope, uh, which is uh, what you and I talked about a moment ago. And the Stop Act is part of that hope. Right now in Ohio, most of the people who overdose and die are actually not overdosing and dying from heroin or prescription drugs, but rather a synthetic form of opioids, uh, usually fentanyl, carfentanil, or some uh, close cousin to that. And this is the new danger in our state. 58% of those who died of overdoses last year uh, were um, found to have fentanyl in their system. It's cheap. It's accessible. A few flakes of it can kill you. It's 50 times more powerful than heroin, roughly. Fentanyl is coming into our country from overseas. So it's not something being produced here. It's something that primarily is being produced in laboratories in China. It's now moving to other countries, but primarily in China. And it comes into our country through the United States mail system. So that's the background to this. And as you know, Greg, I've spent most of my time, really over 20-some years, focused on prevention and education and, and also recovery uh, programs and good treatment programs. That's all incredibly important. But there is more we can do to keep these poisons from coming into our communities in the first place. At a minimum, that reduces the supply and therefore increases the cost. And again, when the majority of Ohioans are dying from this synthetic opioid that's coming in through the mail, uh, we want to increase that cost all we can. So that's what the Stop Act does. It's very simple and it's very much common sense. So you've identified really a weakness, I guess I would call it, in the U.S. postal system that really makes it a little bit easier, much easier in fact, for those that want to ship these illicit drugs into our country. Is that right? That's correct. Back after 9-11 in 2002, the Congress passed legislation concerned about terrorists, you know, frankly, using our our mail system. And the congressional legislation said that if something is shipped into this country from overseas, there has to be advanced data provided electronically to law enforcement that says where the package is coming from, what's in the package, and where it's going. We applied that immediately to the private companies, in other words, FedEx, uh, UPS, DHL, uh, and those companies provide that. I've been to their sorting facilities in Ohio, and I've seen how Customs and Border Protection can identify packages that are suspect because they come from a region in China where there's a problem, because the uh, the address is going to a P.O. box or to a, an abandoned warehouse, for example, and they've been able to stop some of this fentanyl from coming in. With regard to the United States Postal Service, back in 2002, they were given some time to do this. In fact, there was a study in the legislation that they asked the post office to undertake. The post office said they just had you know, too much mail coming in. It would be too difficult to do it immediately, but that they would undertake the study. And clearly, the intent of Congress was that the post office would also provide this advanced electronic data to law enforcement. Unbelievably, Greg, uh, it didn't happen. And here we are. 15, almost 16 years later, and still the post office is only very slowly coming around to this. 
They testified before my committee. I spent a year studying this, as you know. We, we issued a very extensive report that's shocking as to what's happening. Uh, that you know, All the drug dealers that we interacted with online, we had a uh, detailee come from the Customs Border Protection Investigation Unit into our office. And we did, uh, again, about a year-long investigation here. And every single one of the websites we contacted that were interested in selling fentanyl said the same thing use the U.S. mail system. If you do, it's guaranteed delivery. If you don't, if you use one of these other private carriers, it's not, because they know that the U.S. Postal Service does not have these protections in place. Now, recently, the Postal Service has done a better job, uh, but it's still not nearly sufficient, and that's why legislation is required to mandate them to do it. They now tell us that about 38% of packages that have come in over the last year are uh, have electronic data included, and that's a you know better than zero percent. But that still means that there are roughly 320 million packages a year coming into the United States without any advanced electronic data on who sent it, where it's going, what's in it. And this is like finding a needle in a haystack, of course, to find these packages. So they still haven't done what they should do. Second, 20 percent of the time, that law enforcement says, "Okay, post office, thanks for the data on these." 38% of the packages, we'd like to pull this one off. 20% of the time, they can't find the package, and it goes into uh, our communities. The second is the kind of information they're requiring is not specific enough. So in many cases, even on the 38%, there is uh, not the information, uh, advanced electronic data that's needed by law enforcement. For instance, it might be just one Chinese character, and, and, and that gets through the system as opposed to actually providing the information that's needed. So we are trying very hard to work with the post office to improve what they're doing. Uh, this is a danger to them, by the way, for the postal carriers, the, the mail carriers. Uh, this is very dangerous for them. There have been obviously accidents uh, that have, have occurred when fentanyl uh, touches your skin. As you know, you can sure. overdose immediately. Yep. Um, it's a, incredibly dangerous for our first responders. And so all we're saying to the post office is you need to require this data. And when you do that, then law enforcement, as they tell us, will have a much better chance of finding some of this illicit poison and keeping it out of our communities. So what needs to happen, Senator, for total compliance on this? We need to pass the STOP Act. Um, it's legislation that's bipartisan. We have over 30 co-sponsors now in the Senate. Uh, we have a, a companion bill in the House of Representatives. Uh, we know what needs to be done. We have drafted the legislation. We have had hearings on it. Um, we know that the law enforcement community is strongly in support of it, the Customs and Border Protection people, the DEA, uh, the Drug Enforcement Agency, the, the people who are postal inspectors. They, they want this information. You can imagine, again, like finding a needle in a haystack. You've got 500 million packages coming in a year through the post office, and only 38% of them have data, and 20% and of the time that package can't be presented, and the information's not, not good. They, they want... 100%. They want to have the information. Are they going to find everything, Greg? Probably not. No. But yep. they're certainly going to find a lot more of it. And this will reduce the amount of poison coming into our communities, which will, in effect, increase the cost. Now, let me say, after all that, you know, I'm, as you know, a strong supporter of the Interdict Act and increasing the border uh, protection generally, because although this is coming in through the mail, and that's our biggest problem right now, is fentanyl mail. We also know that heroin is coming in overland from Mexico. We know that some fentanyl gets, gets shipped to Mexico, then comes back in overland. 
We know that this is an evolving threat, that things will change. So you also need to have a secure border. So, Senator, uh, President Trump's wall, is that going to help us stop drugs from coming into the country? Or is that actually a bad placement of $5 billion? Well, it depends. <laughs> I'm not a supporter of a wall all across the southern border because I don't think that it is a good use of resources. However, I am for a much more secure border, which would include fencing and walls in some places, particularly in the urban and suburban areas. The most important thing, obviously, is to monitor those walls or fences when they're constructed. And that's been one of our problems. You know, you put up a wall and you don't have the monitoring devices there and you don't have the strike team ready to respond. People will go under it, over it, or even through it. Uh, you know, there are cases of people literally bulldozing through these if there's nobody there. So it's a combination of things in some parts of the border. Yes, a fence or a wall is, is necessary. Other parts, it's electronic monitoring. And in all places, the key is to have the ability to respond quickly uh, with people, boots on the ground to, to be able to handle whatever comes over, whether it's human trafficking, another issue I've spent a lot of time on, and that's happening on our border as well, uh, whether it's uh, individuals coming illegally, uh, obviously that's an issue that everyone knows about and focuses on, or whether it's uh, you know illegal gun traffic, uh, or whether it's, in this case, something we know is happening, which is these drugs coming across our borders with very, very little of it. I'm told by law enforcement, they won't give you the number, but it might be one or two percent are being interdicted now. Okay, Pagan, this concludes episode three of The Trade. What uh, final thoughts would you have for our listeners on that episode? Uh, I mean, I think this episode, episode three, you know, especially at the end, it's really about sort of the obstacles people face in terms of trying to fight this opioid epidemic. Um, so in terms of episode three, I think it's a very interesting episode because we see we see Mexican police struggling to try to stop um, a red truck, you know, with some supplies and they're unable to. We see Special Agent James going after a target who he loses. And we see John um, sort of going to his day in court and reaching out to his family but and trying to use and at the end not being able to successfully use. So we sort of, there's a theme there in terms of um, the obstacles that they're facing as they're dealing with this, you know, the different parts of this epidemic. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 production on The Trade, the Showtime docuseries revealing the grim realities of the opioid epidemic through the eyes of those most affected, the poppy growers, addicts and their families, cartel bosses, and law enforcement. Please join us for the next episode, where once again we'll be joined by the trade executive producer, Pagan Harleman, who will introduce episode four and the backstory behind it, followed by a discussion with the creators of three new innovative programs that are making a difference in the opioid epidemic. My name is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover Two Resources. Thank you again for joining us.